This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. And welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss. I'm the director of Church Society and I'm joined today by our regional director Chris Moore and by Dr Kirsten Burkett, our theological consultant. Good to see you both today. Good to see you Lee. Now, today we thought we would discuss in our Heresy Half Hour uh, series of podcasts a heresy known as Gnosticism, with a big silent G, Gnosticism. Um, I think maybe a place to start would be looking at the end of 1 Timothy, the end of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, where it says the very uh, last couple of verses, O Timothy, guard the deposits entrusted to you, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions, of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So falsely called knowledge or gnosis, and that's where we get the word Gnosticism from. And Paul's obviously warning Timothy off something there uh, in, a, in a letter where he's warning him against false teachings and heresies. It takes about half an hour to read 1 Timothy, so that's a heresy half hour on its on its own. But um, what is this Gnosticism um, that we often talk about? Chris, uh, you're a bit of a, a historian of the early church uh, and, and such things. Tell us what you think Gnosticism is. Well, I can have a go. Uh, I would have thought the basic definition would be having containing some sort of secret knowledge which you have, which others don't. I think in its purest form, it's that idea that you have received a separate revelation, you have received some knowledge which, uh, as I say, you have and others don't. And that then may lead you to reinterpret um, scriptures in a particular way. It may, may lead you to an understanding of a deeper understanding of what it is to be human, your soul and your body, your matter, spirit, all that kind of stuff. But in its core, I'd say it's little secret hidden knowledge that you have. You are now an insider and the others are outsiders. And there were actual people believing this sort of stuff, Kirsty. Um, how do we have access to any of, uh, any of that? Uh, we do have uh, what is loosely called a, select, a, a sec, selection of um, Gnostic scriptures. It's called mm -hmm. the Nag Hammadi Library, which you can buy in a book. Uh, it's easily available now. But these were manuscripts which on first reading might not seem to have that much in common, but they they are generally held together by this idea there's there's extra knowledge to know. And it does seem that it, it formed a particular kind of sect historically that uh, really got going in the second century. Mm. Um, and yeah, and there's, there's part of it is that it's not distinctly doctrinal, uh, but you can see themes coming out in these different scriptures uh, that mm. emerge from them. And there's quite a good uh, sort of Indiana Jones story behind all this because we only discovered this big library of Gnostic texts under the desert sometime in, was it 1945? So that's quite recently, I think. 
It is quite recent, yes, and so people got very excited. And, and it's historically interesting. It gives you insight into what ancient people were believing. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, just as a matter of interest, they're fascinating to read. But they also perhaps do give some, um, you know, context to, to what we understand about the ancient church. Mm, thank you. Chris? I think you can see their footprints as well in, in Irenaeus' writings and, and other writings of the Church Fathers who are clearly seeing this as a great threat and they're countering it. So it's nice to be able to have the sort of the other side, as it were. For a long time, we've yes. just had one half of that conversation and relying upon how it's been portrayed to us by these early Church Fathers, but to have both sides of the argument. But no, clearly a, clearly a big issue and, and something which I'm not sure that we've really got much of a handle on. Mm. I remember reading through uh, that early church father's books, Irenaeus. He has a great book on against heresies. Uh, he spends an awful lot of time talking about how wrong these people are uh, and various doctrines that they held. And I remember thinking to myself, but nobody really believes that, do they? What a load of absolute nonsense. And then you turn to the Nag Hammadi scriptures and, and the Gnostic text, you find, yes, there were actual real people who believed all these sorts of heresies and weird and wacky ideas. Um, I think two of the big ideas then that we could draw out from this um, would be uh, firstly this whole idea of uh, esoteric insight and initiation into some higher level of knowledge and understanding. Um, and also there's a second thing which comes out in all of these things, which is uh, the whole idea of spiritual good material bad if i can put it in a very basic form the spiritual things are are good and right and high and pure whereas material things your body and the earthly fleshly world is bad somehow so we, let, let's explore t those two ideas should we start with um spirit good material bad which is a sort of gnostic idea that that comes out would we see this reflected as an idea somewhere in the new testament um for example I think it's there in, in the beginning of John's Gospel with the absolute insistence that Jesus took flesh and dwelt amongst us. The Word took flesh. And I, there are people who have you know, wondered whether John is countering a very early form of Gnosticism there to really <clears throat> insist that this is a real Jesus. He's not just some phantasm, but Jesus took flesh. So I think we can see some of that, certainly in the New Testament. And I think the whole idea of a sacrament, you know, I know that's moving forward a touch but you know, we do think that it's important to be baptized in water we do eat bread and drink wine and we have a very physical edge to our um understanding of the faith in that way mm, kirsty any other thoughts uh well the passage you just took us to earlier 1 timothy 4 um the the idea that uh you know people were being forbidden to marry uh to told to abstain from certain foods mm. and the whole uh, which, you know, a whole lot of asceticism has developed throughout Christian history. But Paul's very clear, no, that's that's the teaching of demons. And he says uh, these things God created to be received with thanksgiving. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So mm -hmm. it's it's not at all a New Testament idea to reject the physical as somehow bad or evil. Yes, I like that. And in 1 Corinthians 6 as well, we see some of this, this idea that, well, um, the, the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is the food. God's going to destroy both of those. 
Uh, what I do with my body doesn't really matter. Um, so what if I'm having sex with a prostitute? I think that's the issue in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 here. So what if I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm still a, a spiritual Christian person. I can still have sex um, outside of a marriage relationship. That doesn't really matter. But, and then Paul says, no, um, actually, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. So bodies matter. So this, this is kind of countering the whole spirit, good, body, bad thing. Chris? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And, and I think where we see in our current society echoes of that kind of thinking as well is is over the whole issue of how do we define reality? How do we know what is real? How do I know who I am? What does my physical body tell me as opposed to what my mind might tell me? How And there's obviously many, many debates going on uh, within the church and within wider society as well about transgenderism and, and issues uh, of, of that kind. But in their essence, it comes down to the same kind of idea. How do I define who I really am? Does my body, my material form, tell me anything? Or is it simply within my mind? And how do the two relate to each other? And I think that's something we can see playing out within the church and wider society today, which would be familiar, I wonder, perhaps maybe to those uh, early church fathers who were dealing with it back in the second century. Interesting, yeah. Kirsty, do you want to go further on that? That idea of... Being able to define myself or other than, other than my body, beyond my body? Well, yes, it's, it's this whole idea of what, what is actually given that we can't change but is there in reality that we have to accept. What is the authority? And it's, I guess, over the past century or so, a little bit longer, you have seen um, quite a determined movement, this turn within uh, to finding truth within rather than from the outside. So it's not some outside authority that can tell me what's real, mm. which is the sort of thing Chris was just saying. And, and whether that's an outside authority of the physical universe itself or some other person telling me, it's, it's I find the truth within myself, especially the truth about me. Um, and and what I am inside, what I feel, my, my thoughts inside, that's what really matters. And mm-hmm. it's been becoming more and more in, in popular culture over the past few decades. I mean, just think of Star Wars. Trust your feelings, Luke. That's what matters. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Use the force, trust your feelings. Chris, yeah, you no, going to say something? Well, I was, but I think I was going to say something very facetious, actually. But I think that there is that whole thing, and uh, it's easy to pick on sort of certain, as I say, very debated issues at the moment, as I, I clearly did. But it does run through all of us in many ways and in very different ways. We look perhaps even within our own sort of evangelicalism that we end up with a form of spirituality, which is about things that make me feel good rather than the perhaps part of um, my working out of my my Christian life, which sometimes takes hard work and is, is tricky to do and discipline and all those sorts of areas. Is our faith simply about our feelings and a, a kind of a spiritual high on a Sunday morning? Or is it about how I react to the person at the checkout on a Thursday morning when I've forgotten my card? You know, those sorts of issues, I think, of you know, within our mm. camp as well. And classically, we would understand ourselves and only know ourselves 
truly and are right if we turn to God's word. We need God actually to tell us about ourselves. I don't find the truth about me within so much as all by looking at God and what he says about me. There are things I can discover by looking within, but I actually need God's perspective on who I am because he's my creator. I think that's right. And the most radical thing in today's contemporary society, I think, within Paul's writings, is there in Romans 12, this idea of a renewal of the mind. So we define ourselves by our mind. We define ourselves by reality through our mind. But Paul is saying, but I'm here to change that mind. You can't define it. I will, I will redefine all of that. So it, it is very much Christianity is dealing with those very deep things and saying that, that actually it's there to change them. Yeah. And think of what uh, Calvin says. Uh, I mean, he starts his institutes by saying, yes, you, you definitely <laughs> do need to look within and have knowledge of yourself. And what you discover is that you're sinful and you desperately need God. Mm. It, it's not this idea of I, I discover my my true fulfilled self within. I discover how much I need God by looking mm. within. Mm. I discover the, the hunger and thirst I have within me for, for Jesus, the, the, the God-shaped hole, if you like, that Augustine spoke about, our hearts being restless till they find their mm. rest in him. And that whole idea of sin is, is I think, you know, is obviously very much out of vogue at the moment. And I've wondered if it's the same kind of impulse. We don't want, if we are defining ourselves by our interior life, if I could put it in those terms, then to be told that that interior life is somehow flawed is quite a fundamental issue for us to deal with because it's kind of, that's our perception of ourself. And for somebody to say, yeah, but that perception of yourself might not be right, that's quite a challenge. Thinking about perception of self and creating our own um, ideas of who we are um, that you said was part of the transgender movement, Chris, earlier. There is something in the, the Nag Hammadi Gnostic text where that, uh, uh, that changes the Christian and Jewish accounts of creation. Um, and it's become quite a popular way of thinking about it. So the idea that God didn't create Adam and then Eve from Adam, uh, he actually created a genderless androgynous dustling and out of that at the same time he created male and female uh, at the same time adam and eve came out of this genderless dustling this blob uh, that was created somehow by the powers um, and that is an interesting gnostic idea undermining the genesis account but it does resurface just recently in feminist biblical interpretation of genesis um, and, and particularly in those who want to have a more egalitarian understanding of male-female relationships and male-female um, working within the family and the church. So they see if both come out of this genderless dustling at the same time, they are equal rather than Adam being created first and then Eve. In fact, it's one of the uh, one of the tricks, I think, of Satan or someone in, in the in the Gnostic texts to deceive Adam into thinking that Eve came out of his rib when he really didn't. She really didn't. Um, I don't know if you've come across that or that whole idea of bringing up Gnostic ideas into modern biblical interpretation. No. <laughs> uh, I'm very grateful, as you're saying all of this, that my sort of um, investigations with the texts around the New Testament has ended with somebody like Justin Martyr. I'm not into that. But it, what is interesting, as you're saying that, though, is this idea that um, you've got these sorts of questions a long way back as well. So that I'm just thinking of that, nothing new under the sun, you know, but that idea that 
although we often treat within a lot of our modern scholarship this idea that we've only just now come to the idea that male and female may be seen as equal, uh, we've only just now come to this understanding of egalitarianism, that it actually has very deep roots. And I think it was, what was it, C.S. Lewis who talked about chronological snobbery, but this idea that only as enlightened people now can we get to this kind of sudden bit of knowledge where it is all there um, in the past. But I think mm. in some of Jesus' teachings about um, marriage and divorce, I mean, he's he does seem to talk about male and female there, but I suppose it's difficult to say, you know, because Jesus would be silent on an issue, how, you know, it wasn't an issue that he had to had to particularly tackle. No. But, but well, Kirsty is a woman Genesis who knows all these a, sorts of things, that. so I shall, uh, <laughs> I shall defer to her. Uh, it's, um, I mean, of course, it's, it's not what the text says, and it also ignores the fact that what the text does say is that the, the account of Genesis as we have it, and as it has been traditionally understood, is that men and women are equal, created from the same substance. Yeah. But any differentiation between them in, in role or otherwise does not make them unequal. Mm. Uh, it's um, also that idea that there was an original sort of hermaphroditic, non-gendered creation that was then split into male and female. That's also been used to argue why homosexuality must be wrong because it is intensely unnatural uh, because the original substance was male and female and you, mm. and you need to reunite male and female uh, to come back to that. Now, I think that argument is wrong, but it just goes to show how uh, the one wrong idea can lead to all sorts of strange things that you might not have anticipated uh, uh, as you're trying to formulate it. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Well, the second thing we want to explore with Gnosticism is this whole idea of some Gnostic uh, initiation, some esoteric insight and knowledge that we have and you don't, or that you can somehow climb up a ladder of insight and understanding um, and be initiated into a greater, smaller circle, perhaps um, an inner circle of knowledge. And this is a Gnostic idea, a Gnostic way of doing things. I wonder if we see some of that in the way that secret societies work, things like the Freemasons uh, and other things. Uh, I wonder if we see it reflected in the New Testament in some of Colossians and Paul's um, polemic there against a form of Colossian heresy of some sort that, that has Gnostic elements. And that's why he's so insistent that you have everything you need in the gospel and you don't need to be going off to some false philosophy or some higher knowledge. You have it in the gospel. Um is it reflected anywhere else in the New Testament or in, in any other way, do you think? I find it interesting when um, Jesus' tri trial taking place and um, with the Sanhedrin that he's saying, basically when he's been quizzed about his teaching, he's saying, well, ask anybody. I, I taught all this out there in the synagogues and in the temple. So there's that mm. sense that, or, or the, those of you who follow the lectionary, uh, the reading on Sunday of uh, John the Baptist sending um, his disciples to Jesus to say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And the answer is, well, tell him what you've seen. You know, the, heal, the lame were healed and so on. These are very public acts. And I was struck, well, I mentioned it when I was preaching on it, but I was very struck with this very public form of Jesus's ministry. Jesus isn't hiding. Jesus isn't saying, I've had a secret revelation, which I share with one or two people. This was very public teaching and it was out there in the open. So I think we've seen 
Jesus's own ministry, if you like, a kind of an antidote to that kind of hidden uh, knowledge. He, he, yes. These things were open. Paul says the same, doesn't he, to, to someone in Acts, said these things were not done in a corner. Yeah. I think it's important to recognise that it's intensely attractive to think, mm-hmm. oh, we're the people with the secret knowledge. Or, yes. I, I know, you don't know, but I know. And, and you don't have to go to a society like the Freemasons for that. It can be in your own street or in your own company. Who's the inner circle at work? Mm-hmm. Who are the ones mm-hmm. who really know what's going on, who hear the gossip first or, or know the true story behind the gossip, whatever it is. It's, it's a, we want to be the ones who know so that we have power over other people. So I think it's something you're going to see turning up all over the place. Mm. It's a human, a basic human impulse to want to know the secrets. And and Mm. it's pride. It Mm. it appeals to our pride to think, well, we're the important people because we're the ones entrusted with the secrets that that the ordinary people out there don't get to have. Ah, yes. I I found it interesting from coming into the Church of England from from being ordained in another denomination first, that, that sense of people finding it very difficult to deal with me because they don't know which box to put me in because I didn't train at college X, Y or Z. I didn't go through a certain sort of uh, process of curacy or whatever it is. And it's just I find it interesting within the Church of England that we have those kind of camps and inner groups and inner circles as well based around often around theological colleges or they may be based around um, sort of networks that now exist alongside. And it's it's there everywhere. And I suppose one way of asking ourselves whether we fall prey to it is, are we willing to read books by people written outside of our tradition? Or do we think we might catch some kind of false knowledge from then in some way and how confident we are? But uh, I mean, I am, I suppose, well, I think I must be the only one of your many, many minions, Lee, who didn't train at Oak Hill. Does that make me dodgy? Does that make me sort of you know, <laughs> <laughs> not in the inner core? I think there's something there about tribalism and about gangs in the way that humans interact generally at a social level. So we do tend to form tribes of different types. Um, but I wonder, and Gnosticism can be related to some of that. So our tribe has the secret knowledge that your tribe doesn't. We're the only ones who've ever interpreted the gospel right, uh, that sort of thing. And maybe Paul is um, bashing some of that in 1 Corinthians when he says to them, because of their idiosyncratic way of doing things, they're rather eccentric, they've forgotten the wider church. He says, you know, did the word of God originate with you? Are you the only ones it's reached? Well, no. Um, it's amazing that, you know, the church has kept going for 2,000 years without your theological college, your training course, your book publishing company, um, or whatever, whoever it is. Um, but of course it has, because it doesn't rely on individuals or those particular gangs. Oh, I, I think that's true. We're inherently tribal. We like to stick to our tribe. That's uh, that's where we're comfortable. And, and we do tend to build ourselves up in all those sorts of ways, uh, saying, yes, and that, that temptation to say we're the only ones who can interpret this correctly. Everyone else who ever read the Bible got it wrong uh, <laughs> because cause we know uh, that, or, yeah, that's going mm-hmm. to come out in all sorts of different tribes uh, inside and outside the church. I think it's very interesting mm-hmm. when I find um, atheistic scholars telling me what the Bible says because they understand it better than the whole of church history. 
Yeah. <laughs> I've seen that recently as well in some liberal understandings of marriage and sexuality, the big pod button issues of the day, where they do seem to be claiming that we now have some insight into human nature that scripture doesn't, that Jesus and the apostles didn't know. They didn't know that people, some people are gay, um, for instance. And so we now know that. We have that insight. We have that scientific understanding that scripture doesn't have. And therefore, we can ignore certain parts of scripture or change them or move on, develop however they want to put it. But I think that's a claim to Gnostic knowledge, to some higher level of knowledge that means we can dismiss what God has revealed. Well, it, it is. It's, you know, with, now with our modern scientific understanding, we know so much more about human nature and human sexuality. But, you know, you can't have it both ways. Uh, there's also an exhibit in my local museum here about um, queer affirming people throughout history uh, and back to the ancient Greeks uh, and all the ways in which, um, you know, different mythologies reflect uh, queer ideas. I mean, if it, if it was there, then then people did know. <laughs> you know, if if that's if that's a true argument. So there's there's all sorts of ways in which people want to use that argument, and sometimes uh, entirely contradictory ways. As you pointed out previously with the, with the previous um, idea as well. That's right. And I think it's important in all of this as well that, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've done this earlier on in the podcast, you know, I would talk about Gnosticism and the view of the body and everything and, and point to a particular debate and a particular sort of grouping of people. But we have to acknowledge that we all individually fall prey to this as well. And that, you know, there would be certain teachers that I would uh, trust their insight almost in that sense of having that secret knowledge or I would be I'm a great fan of Presbyterians Lee and you know I read a lot of Presbyterian stuff and listen to a lot of Presbyterian things and uh, I have a son who's Presbyterian and um, I sometimes I think there it's interesting how the Westminster Confession can operate is almost a collection of, of this is an interpretation which is right because it came through the school via Calvin and through into it and, and that holds an equal weight to the scriptures and becomes a lens through which we interpret I think we're all prone to this and I'm Increasingly, as I as I age and go into decrepitude before your very eyes, I often wonder. I wonder how much I've been using this kind of stuff to point the fingers elsewhere. But I need to be you know, pointing and considering myself as well, which is why I hang around with people like the Eastern Orthodox, as you know, Lee. Just because it, uh, because it, well, it challenges me. You know, it challenges me to think. Well, why do I think this? Is it just because it's the tradition, the secret knowledge from my college, or is it because I do find it in in scripture? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and we have his word, the scriptures. So in, in, in the end, all we need to be um, focusing on is the, the scripture, that we, we have the scriptures, we have everything we need. Um, it is sufficient for life and godliness. It's sufficient for our salvation. Um, that, that's where we should be focusing to test any other foundations or um, later statements that might be made. We do, as humans, make statements and collectively draw up statements. That's just a natural human thing to do over time. Um, and so that's why we have creeds. That's why we have confessions. Mm. But we can test them all, as most of those creeds and confessions and the people who wrote them would tell us. We test them all by scripture because that really truly is a revelation from God. And I suppose that the great argument against Gnosticism 
is that scripture is clear. Mm. I mean, it seems to me that a lot of this sort of the issue of the secret knowledge is it's saying that the scripture isn't clear, but somehow I've understood it in a way that nobody else has before. Whereas again, we would have say a good a good reformed doctrine is is that of the clarity of scripture. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, that's been fascinating discussion to think about Gnosticism, about spirit good, matter bad, and the whole idea of esoteric higher levels of knowledge. And are we going to tell people that if they join church society, they get a secret book of truth? <laughs> no, not at all. Being part of church society is a good thing to do, but it doesn't give you access to any higher levels of knowledge, although it does give you access to Crossway Magazine or the Global Anglican and all of our books and podcasts and things like this. And do join us again on the Church Society podcasts um, to, to hear us talk perhaps in another heresy half hour about some of the false ideas that are going around today and in the history of the church. But other things on the podcast, too. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.